Cannot be overstated enough. Christianity is Jesus. The gospel is Jesus, the person and work of Christ. And for a church like ours that's so bold and confident in asserting our gospel centrality, we have to be vigilant in reminding ourselves of that because we can actually be so gospel-centered that we can miss the gospel. If we forget that the gospel is Jesus. If we turn the gospel into a simple formula or some kind of uh, mental acknowledgement alone. And you can hear it in our language sometimes. You know, when we sin, what am I not believing about the gospel? So I simply mentally adjust, begin to think something different, run my mind through a formula, and voila, I'm better. Right? But I'm I'm afraid of others because I'm forgetting that God is great. And so if I just remember that God is great, then I'm all better. If I'm finding satisfaction in sin instead of God, then I remember that God is better than sin, and voila, I'm all better. If that's all we do, if we reduce the gospel to simply, this is what I'm doing wrong, this is what I'm not believing, this is what I need to believe so that I can begin to do something different, what's missing? Jesus. Jesus is missing. And we're really no better than a 12-step program. What has Jesus done? Who is Jesus? What does Jesus say about me? How does Jesus create my identity? And how is my identity rooted in Jesus? Following Jesus is more than mentally acknowledging propositional truth. That that is crucial. It's an important element. But he is a person. So is our confession of our belief in these propositional truths about this person leading us to love and be captivated with and have affection for this person so that we're willing to lay down our life, we're willing to serve, we're willing to sacrifice whatever it takes to follow Jesus, to know Jesus, to be in love with Jesus, to worship Jesus. As we walk through this this gospel of Mark, don't lose sight of this fact that the gospel is all about Jesus. There's there's no one like him. And to the original hearers who were in Rome undergoing persecution, where their friends were being taken captive and doused with oil and put on stakes and lit on fire, the only way they persevere in their faith while that's going on all around them, potentially something they themselves could suffer, the only way they persevere in their faith through that is not because they can pass a theological test, but it's because they know a person. They're following a king. They're being transformed by the Messiah, Jesus. And they're united with this king. Therefore, they're willing to continue to serve this king and lay down their life for this king. The gospel is Jesus. Christianity is Jesus. Mark has already boldly, unashamedly introduced us to this king in the opening 15 verses. We've seen him tie the arrival of Jesus to the Old Testament prophecy and the work of this man, John the Baptist. We've seen Jesus identify with those he came to save through baptism. He's taken the place of sinners who need to repent. He is the true Israel. He is the the better Adam, the second Adam. He is going to, to not fail where Israel and Adam both failed. He's come to crush the head of the serpent, which starts with resisting temptation for 40 days in the wilderness. He's forming a new people for himself, baptized with the Holy Spirit, that will follow this new king in his kingdom. And then he begins to to call people to follow him. 
as, as Jesse walked us through last week, specifically Simon, Andrew, James, and John. So now today, we come to this long section that shows us this king begin to act. And as we walk through this section, we're going to see this king begin to do things that are to become very repetitive in his ministry. Actions that you would, you would expect of a king who is God. This is, what, this is what God would do if he were king. And Mark, who has boldly introduced Jesus, is going to begin to layer just this vignette after vignette, episode after episode of this God who is king, this king who is God, doing these things that only he can do. To build this case, to build our confidence, the confidence of the original audience in this person, Jesus. So that no matter what they face, no matter what he calls them to, no matter what they go through, they can know in the deepest part of their being, he's the one, he's worth it. So in this section, we'll see five specific actions of Jesus that would flavor his ministry. This is not all he did, but we're going to see these come up again and again. And we take them all together and we get this amazing picture of a king who amazed people then and still amazes us today. Beginning in verse 21. And they went into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed. So they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and he took her by the hand and lifted her up. And the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Father, we are grateful. We are grateful for Jesus. This week, this holy week, where we celebrate him arriving in Jerusalem. We're thankful for the rejection, the suffering that he went through on our behalf. We're thankful that the defeat on the cross was not a defeat, but was a victory. And that Easter happened. And so, Father, as we prepare to go into this week that's so important to our faith, help us to see today the beauty of the glory of Jesus. Create in our hearts an affection for Him today that is fresh, that is new, that would drive us to be sent into our city this week to share His love, to share the gospel, to to show His love to those that we're in life with. We're so undeserving. Come, Lord Jesus, and do what only You can do in our hearts today. We ask in His powerful name. Amen. So the first thing we see in the the opening verses, verses 21 and 22, is that Jesus teaches with authority. Jesus arrives in Capernaum, 
uh, a local fishing town on the Sea of Galilee, a city that he would later condemn because of their sin and unbelief. And he enters the synagogue on, on the Sabbath, the Sabbath being our Saturday. Jesus would do what was custom for all Jewish males on, on the Sabbath. He would go to the synagogue. Now, the synagogue, you might think of it being like a, a small group Bible study for Jewish men. Synagogues could be formed wherever there were 10 or more Jewish men over the age of 12 who had a desire to read, study, and understand the law and, and then help each other obey it. Synagogues were not found in the Old Testament. Rather, they were created during the time of the Babylonian captivity when the Jews were separated from the temple, so they couldn't do the ritualistic sacrifices and the things that the Old Testament commanded, but they had the law. So they said, let's gather into small groups of men in these, over here in Babylon, and let's study the law, let's read the law, let's understand the law, so we can obey it. And then they just kept that in their culture uh, from the 500s B.C. onward. So there were not a place where there would be rituals or sacrifices done. There wouldn't be a priest there. It would just be men studying the law to help each other obey the law. And wherever there were 10 men gathered, there could be a synagogue. And, and at the time of Jesus in Jerusalem, there were over 500 synagogues, 500 small groups of Jewish men studying the scriptures. And then throughout the other towns and surrounding regions, there would be even more than that. So it was customary for, for Jesus being a Jewish man and all his followers to go to the synagogue on the Sabbath. Same thing you see in the book of Acts. When Paul goes from city to city throughout the Roman Empire to spread the gospel, he would always start where? In the synagogue with the Jews. Because he could help them to see how the Old Testament scriptures pointed to Jesus. So Jesus shows up and he has this opportunity to teach. And he does so with an authority that amazes the people, it says, and not as the scribes. So who are the scribes? Scribes were officers that went back to the reign of King David. They were official reporters of the kingdom. But by the time of Jesus, they had become essentially legal experts on the Old Testament scriptures. You might say lawyers of the Old Testament scriptures. They, they knew the scriptures. They not only knew the scriptures, but they knew all the possible interpretations of the scriptures. And what the scribes said about the scriptures, the people held that as authoritative. Like, what they think this scripture means, that settles it. They were highly intelligent, highly respected by the people. Experts on the law. So what made Jesus' teaching different and with even greater authority? I mean, what, were they, what, what did he do? Did he just like speak real loudly or yell or look mad like a, you know, authoritative football coach like a Nick Saban just comes in there and just takes charge and this is how it's going to be and I'm the man and look at me and all these great things I can do? Was that what he was doing? Um, well, it was something a little bit different and it's not easy to see in that passage or even Mark because as we've talked about, Mark has so little of Jesus' recorded teachings. But it's, it's easier to see it in other parts of the Gospels. We know one distinct difference from the other Gospels between the teaching of Jesus and the scribes is that Jesus spoke with his own authority. So scribes and their authority was based upon the interpretations of other rabbis and other teachers that had been written down and recorded in, in Jewish writings that were not scripture. And scribes were known for their ability to not only know the scriptures, but to know all the possible interpretations. And so scribes would sound like this. Rabbi so-and-so said this about this passage. Rabbi so-and-so said this about this passage. Rabbi so-and-so said this about this passage. Kind of like if we stood up here and just quoted other pastors or other commentaries. But Jesus comes along, and he doesn't say, thus saith this rabbi, or thus saith this rabbi. Jesus says, I say to you. I say to you. Like even like in the Sermon on the Mount, when he comes along and says, you've heard that it was said long ago, do not murder. But I say to you, a man who hates his brother in his heart has committed murder. You've heard it said long ago. You've, 
You've seen it written long ago, do not commit adultery. But I say to you, a man who looks at a woman lustfully in his heart has committed adultery. Just the fact that Jesus doesn't quote other people, but simply says, I say to you, shocking to the people who heard him say that. Like we think, it's such a small deal, but we're not Jewish. We're not in that culture. We don't see it as they saw it. To them, like you didn't do this. Nobody did this. Like, when, what would you have to do in a, in a church today as a pastor to do something that nobody's doing right now? I could ride a motorcycle in here. That's been done. I could shoot y'all with a water gun. That's been done. I could swing down, rappel uh, on a zip line through here. That's been done. Like, what would I have to do to shock you with something crazy? Like, light myself on fire or light Joseph on fire? I've never seen that, right? But all Jesus, not me, Joseph, right? All Jesus did was say, I say to you, you've not, not this person says, but I say to you, I am the authority. And it was shocking. It was amazing to the people. He would also say something like this in Matthew 23, 34. Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you kill and crucify, and some of you, you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town. Jesus, who sent the prophets according to the Jews? God sent the prophets. Yet Jesus says, I send you prophets. What? Who, who does this guy think he is? And this is why so often throughout the Gospels they wanted to kill him. This is eventually why they did kill him. Even though they were actually falling into his plan as he willingly gave up, gave up his life. Jesus had this self-awareness about his identity to such a degree that he knew he was speaking with the same authority of God. He never spoke like the prophets, thus saith the Lord. He always would speak from the first person. I say to you, this amazed the people. They had never heard anyone teach like this. Claiming to be on the same level as authoritative scriptures, which is on the same level of God. It, it's, I can't even make a common day comparison because we don't do this and shouldn't do this as pastors. Like if you walked in here one Sunday and we said, well, here's the Bible. It's nice. It's got a lot of good stuff in it, but we're going to lay it aside because I'm, I'm going to tell you what I think you should do. Please remove me right then. Like you have permission. Just bull rush me. Drag me out by my heels. Like, we don't ever want to do that. That's never who we're going to be. It's always, our authority is always, what does the Bible say? What does the Bible mean? And this is how we apply it. And guys, even that is subject to you searching the scriptures to discern if there's anything helpful or productive in that. Like, we can get up here and preach a sermon that we have great confidence in, and you come along later and say, you know, I think you might have been off on that. And hopefully we're going to stay teachable and humble enough where we can say, well, let's sit down and talk about it and find out. Because I could be off. We could be wrong. The scriptures are the authority. I'm not the authority. Kendrick's not the authority. Scott's not the authority. The three of us together are not the authority. Scripture's the authority. And it's only in our adherence to the scripture that we have authority as we proclaim it. You as a disciple maker, discipling your children... Your, your role is not to be the creative or the clever or the authoritative voice. It's to point them to the scriptures. And so it's real simple. If you have, have kids at home, just grab the Bible. Grab the Jesus Storybook Bible or some other good teaching of the scriptures and sit down with your kids and walk them through. This is what the Bible says. What do you think this means? How do you think we can apply this? Young, young daughter or young son? Do it as, with older kids. They may be able, old, old enough to have their own quiet times, but... Have them walking through books of the Bible. Sit down and talk to them. What, what does the Bible say? What do you think it means? How do you think you apply that? Obey it. How does the Holy Spirit help us understand that? 
Do it as a family. It's other people you're pouring into, other people you're discipling, people you work with, people in your neighborhood, people in your, the rest of your extended family. It's, it's always, disciple making always goes back to the scriptures. What does the scripture say? What does it mean? How do we apply it? That is our authority, which means we have to be a people who are in the book, who know the book, who are filled with the spirit to help people get the book. Just Jesus being this living word of God revealed by the written word of God, because he alone has that nature and identity, Jesus could say, I say this, and it's as authoritative as every other word that God has ever spoken. And this amazed the people. Secondly, Jesus exercised power over demons. Look at verse 23. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Why have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And then later on in verse 34, it says, He healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons and would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. So this is our first encounter of, of, in, in the Gospel of Mark between Jesus and a demon. Just quick history of the origin of demons. God created angels sometime in, in, in creation past when he was making all things, and these angels were, were beings that were not human, but they were not God. These spirit beings who, who had power and some ability, but, the, but the, they weren't in the same uh, uh, category or standard as, as God was, but they were, they were more than human in some degrees. And these angels were created to serve God, to carry out his, his mission, to accomplish his purposes, but the chief angel, Lucifer, rebelled, a third of the angels rebelled with him and were cast out of heaven. These spirit beings, angels, became what we call Demons led by Satan, the slanderer. Now, these spirit beings have some power and ability, but they are still under the sovereign will and control of God. So stories like Job, where Satan comes to God and asks for permission to test Job, God says, you can do it, but you can only go this far. They had to submit to the power and authority and sovereign will of God. Stories like Peter in Luke chapter 22, Satan asks permission to sift you as wheat, Peter, so Jesus gave Satan that permission, but he says, when you return. So Peter, we know, I know you're going to repent and return and be restored, even though you're about to go through this time of testing. And so they have power, they have ability, but it's all in the sovereign will of God. This, this belief that these demonic forces are real, that Satan is a real entity, immediately in our sophisticated Western intellectual culture puts us in the category of kooky, like you don't really believe all that stuff's real, do you? Now, they're not as powerful as they're portrayed in media, movies, and other, even other religions. Like, it's common in other groups to see evil and good as these two equal but opposing forces, and they're battling it out, and in the end, there's going to be this battle to determine who really wins. We don't really know who that's going to be. We've got to wait and see. Like, biblically, that's not accurate at all. Biblically, it's already been decided. God is absolutely sovereign, absolutely in control. The battles are, the, 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 the war has already been won at Calvary. And we're just fighting at battles and skirmishes until Jesus comes and says, enough. We're done. I'm calling my people to myself. All the evil forces and Satan, all his demons will be cast here. And we're going to have this eternal king that's going to be amazing. Until then, there's these skirmishes and these battles. But we're, we're always headed to a better day because we're headed to a day when all evil, suffering, and darkness will be done away with. So when Jesus comes and has these confrontations with these demons and exerts his power and authority over them and tells them to shut up, come out, be done with this person, these are taste samples 
like a platter of hors d'oeuvres of what the kingdom is going to be like, where, where we're headed, how it's going to be forever one day when these forces will be done away with. And as Jesus went about his ministry, he would frequently encounter a person who was demonically possessed under the control of a demon, a fallen angel, and you'd have this showdown. Now, one question is, do these kinds of events still happen today? Is this something that only occurred during Bible times? In a word, yes. These things still happen today. All you have to do is read. Um, I can't share like a personal story of an encounter with a demonically possessed person or being involved in the process of, of dealing with a demon that was in control of a person. I can tell you stories about being in parts of Nicaragua and China that were oppressive and, and dark and heavy in, in the spiritual realm. Like you just, because of idolatry, because of witchcraft, because of things of, of sinful nature that were going on in those regions, it just, it just felt different. Like this, this, there's gods, these pagan gods that are being on buildings and even the light poles are shaped like these pagan gods. This is a different kind of feeling than I've had anywhere else in the world. But I've also read enough stories and interviews with pastors and church leaders and missionaries who um, show us that these occurrences still happen today. And many people believe that as our nation becomes more and more biblically illiterate, we're going to see an increase of this kind of activity. Because there seems to be a correlation that the less biblically literate a culture is, the more prevalent this kind of activity is. And so the more our culture goes down this path of not knowing the scriptures, the more these power confrontations can be expected to happen. It's, like, there's not anything to be afraid of. Like, you're sitting there like, oh, I don't know about that. There's nothing to be afraid of. Because we win, right? Our king is in control. Our king is in charge. You don't have to be scared of this. The mistake that we make in this this, this realm of, of spiritual life is we're either overly interested in this aspect of spirituality where we want to know the name of our guardian angel or we don't want to know the name of all the demons and we want to know how their hierarchy of structure and leadership works and where, where the demons over New York and New Orleans are because certainly they're controlled by demons or, or we want to see people have a demons attached to their back and all this kind of stuff. Like there's an over-interest that gets crazy. People even want to talk to, that, to demons and Guardian angels. That, that's dangerous. Very, very dangerous. Um, the other mistake is we just apathetic. We just ignore it. Doesn't exist, doesn't matter, doesn't, doesn't care. Okay, go read Ephesians 6. The spiritual warfare that we're engaged in is not a, a war, a battle with flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers over this darkness and, and rulers over the air. And so we fight that battle, but it's a battle not rooted in, look at our ability, and we have all these magical spiritual abilities that we can throw out by quoting scripture, and look how amazing we are, we can order demons around, but it's an empowered and ability that's rooted in Christ. We stand in the Lord, we stand in Christ, Christ fights the battle, the Lord fights the battle. We, we fight uh, in prayer, we fight through the scriptures, we fight in the power of the Holy Spirit. But where our identity, our standing doesn't change because of Christ. Jesus had many encounters. And the one thing you notice about these encounters is that this is the one group of beings that consistently got the identity of Jesus right. Like every time. His disciples, as we'll see today, still don't have a clue. They don't, they don't have a clue all the way into the time Jesus ascends into heaven. They're still missing it. Other people don't get it. Religious leaders don't get it. Demons always got it right. Being spiritual beings, former angels, fallen angels from time past, they knew more than anyone else who Jesus really was. You see it in this passage. Uh, who, or what, have you, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. 
That's amazing. Not only do they know who he is in his humanity, Jesus of Nazareth, we know, we know where you come from. We know where we're headed. There's coming a day that you're going to destroy us. Is this today? Is it over today? Is now the time that you're going to wipe us out? Holy One of God, this incredible term of identity and recognition of who Jesus really was. Demons could pass theological tests. James 1.29, or rather James 2.19, you believe that God is one, you do well, even the demons believe and shudder. Demons have faith. Demons believe. Demons can pass theological exams. Demonic faith is kind of what I talked about earlier, is faith that is intellectual only. It is faith that can check all the boxes of, is this true, is this not true? But it's not a faith that will follow in obedience Jesus. Because demons don't do that. That's demonic faith. Faith that's head only, intellect only, theological checkbox only. But there's no following of Jesus, which is what James chapter 2 is all about. Faith that proves itself as genuine because it works. It acts. It follows Jesus. Now, even though they knew who Jesus was, he didn't permit the demons to speak. Now, just get this power in Jesus. He speaks and demons obey. He's not like a wizard or a magician. He's not like Gandalf or Harry Potter or a Jedi mind trick or doing anything like that. He's just, be quiet. They're done. But stop talking. That's all he has to do. Like speak one word and these demons who have had complete control over certain humans, they're done. Come out of him. They're coming out. Whatever he says they're going to do, no matter how much they may or may not want to do it. The God who spoke all things into existence, who created everything with the word of his mouth, still has that power and authority over creation that he can speak it in creation. These created beings, even though they're evil, they have to obey. This complete authority of God. Now, one question is, why did he silence them? Why did he tell them to be quiet? Well, hold on to that. We're going to look at that next week. There is an answer. But for today, just be amazed, like the people were amazed, that Jesus could come along, this man of Nazareth. They didn't know he was the Holy One of God. This man of Nazareth who could come along with such power over spiritual forces of darkness that the everyday common person, they had no solution for this. They had no ability to fix this. They just watched their family members, watched their friends be under the complete control of these demonic forces. And this man comes along with a word. Changes their life forever. Come out. You're done. Um, as long as we are in Christ, we share in that victory. Now, that doesn't mean, like it's portrayed in some movies, that we should go around ordering demons to do this and ordering demons to do that. But we're submissive to the Lord. We're standing in the strength of the Lord. We're relying on the power of the Holy Spirit. We're walking in that victory as well. And the primary way we walk in the same victory over Satan and demonic forces is in our resistance to temptation. Jesus just proved that in the wilderness. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. The works of the devil are lies and temptations to sin, to destroy our lives. That's what sin does. So we want to exert this same kind of power that's in us Empowered by the Holy Spirit, the same Spirit that was empowering Jesus, saying no to temptation and sin. 
and living a life that other people see there's something different about them. They don't give into the same sins that other people give into. They have this, this righteousness and this holiness about them. Thirdly, Jesus heals with power and compassion. Pick up at verse 29. Immediately, Jesus left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now, Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they, they told him about her. And he came, and he took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Now, Jesus finishes teaching in the synagogue of Capernaum, and he moves to Peter's house. We know from John 1.44 that Peter and Andrew are from Bethsaida, and they probably have moved to this larger town of Capernaum because it's a better fishing industry, more lucrative. So now Jesus has called them to follow him, become fishers of men. On this Sabbath day, Jesus comes over to their house. You, you never read in the Gospels of anyone going to Jesus' house. And other than the clothes on his back, he never owned anything. And even that was given away at the end of his life. But it's very likely that Jesus' headquarters for his ministry around the Sea of Galilee was here in this house in Capernaum. Now, archaeologists have discovered what they strongly believe is Peter's house in 1968. It was a, a, a complex called an insula complex. There were no windows or doors on the street side of this complex, just a, a big mud brick wall with a small entrance. And you walk through the entrance into a courtyard, and around the courtyard would be doors and windows of dwelling places. And so in those dwelling places, Peter would live with his wife. We know from 1 Corinthians that Peter was married. And other family members or other, maybe his parents or her parents would live there. Maybe some siblings or their families would live there. And all these dwellings would surround this courtyard. And in this courtyard, you would have places that would be uh, places to sit. There would be hearths or like fire pits where they could cook and keep themselves warm. There'd be olive presses and and great presses, there would be uh, other places to, to just carry out everyday life, to hang out as a family. And so Jesus comes from the synagogue of Capernaum, he walks into Peter's house, maybe there's a nice cool breeze blowing off the Sea of Galilee, it's a sunny day, they're hanging out while the leaves and the trees are blowing, just this beautiful picture, like, I want to go there. And, and archaeologists who discovered what they believe was Peter, Peter's house actually found tons of Christian graffiti in this complex. And if it is Peter's house, they believe it was not only a meeting place for Christians through the first century into the second century, but was probably a church meeting there in Peter's house. And so Jesus is hanging out with his followers, hanging out with his family, and somebody comes to him and says, Peter's mother-in-law is sick. Now, this, this is a place where you can interject all kinds of mother-in-law jokes. Just the fact that Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law was an act of compassion. Uh, but seriously, we love mother-in-laws. Mother-in-laws are great. Mother-in-laws are wonderful. Um, Mark records that she had a fever Luke, in his account, hints that this may be something more than a fever. Luke says in Luke 4.39, Jesus stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. Immediately she rose and began to serve them. That Jesus rebuked the fever, this language that, that implies it could have been of demonic origin. There was some type of demonic origin to this sickness, this fever. And the fever is so severe, she's so sick... Jesus goes to her. He doesn't put on a show like the miracle workers of that day would do. There's no chanting or incantations, no spells like the Greeks miracle workers would do that day. There was nothing but power and compassion. Jesus grabbed her by the hand, lifted her up, and she was better. The fever left. Like, you've been sick with fever. Probably everybody in this room has been sick with fever. Somebody comes along to you, grabs you by the hand, picks you up out of the bed, and you're better. 
so much better, it says, that she went back to serving. Like, you know what it's like for a fever to leave you. The fever breaks, and you're still in the bed for another day or two. This woman got back up and went to work. Like, it's, it's not just that there was an absence of sickness and disease and maybe even a demon. There was the presence of energy and power. Almost like the, the curse of sickness has been completely reversed, as though it had never been there. And this woman was completely made whole, made well, made new physically, and able to carry on this, this ministry of serving that she was doing. Total healing, total power with compassion. Evening comes on the Sabbath. Uh, remember, the Sabbath was sundown Friday to sundown on Saturday. So the sun sets on Saturday. Word has spread in Capernaum. And here they come. Mark says that they are, the whole city was at the door. And it may have felt like that. Who knows if he's being literal or not, or just hyperbole. Uh, in a day and age where the advances, of, they don't have the advances of medicine that we have today. You know, it was, in, it was the 1800s before we knew about germs. All right? Until the 1800s, it was very common for, say, doctors to perform surgery on one person without scrubbing up, go perform surgery on another person. A doctor would be working with a, a dead person over here with some sickness and disease, then go deliver a woman's baby and couldn't figure out why the woman died. He's just passing along all these germs. Microscopes, technology comes along, God graces mankind with these advancements, and we begin to understand germs. Before the late 1800s, there was no such thing as germaphobes or Purell, Purell or uh, antibacterial soap. Like some of you are squirming in your seat right now to think about what life was like back then. Scott's having a fit, right? Um, but they didn't know that these microscopic organisms were carrying disease and sickness from, from person to person. And when you cough, you're spreading germs. So nobody did this before 1800 or before the last 10 years. They didn't get it. So go back 1800 more years to the time of Jesus, and people were completely helpless against sickness and disease. God hadn't even graced humanity with that, at that time with the medicinal or the surgeries or the therapies or technology we have today. So people get sick and they die. They're helpless to do anything. And along comes this man, and with a word, with a touch, instantly they're better. You, you can see why people were flocking from the entire town, bringing anyone and everyone they knew who was sick. Like I would go, if I was healthy, just get kind of like a tune-up, just make sure everything is healthy, just in case I'm sick and I don't know I'm sick. In the first century, for someone to genuinely, authentically be able to instantly heal, and, and for this person to do it with compassion, he's not demanding money, he's not demanding anything, just graciously dispensing his grace, his mercy, and power. Just giving it away. Here, take it, be well. This is what the kingdom is going to be like one day, where there will be no sickness, no suffering, no sorrow, no disease, no pain, no, no, no death. And we're getting a taste of it. Jesus is giving a taste of it to his people in this day and age. And Mark is clear. Like it, it tells us there in the passage that um, it wasn't just demons being cast out. Like some people would say, well, these poor anti-intellectual backward people long ago, they thought that every sickness was caused by demons. Mark is clear. The rest of the gospel writers are clear. He healed sickness and he cast out demons. And he's doing it with compassion, which is another theme that we'll see throughout the gospel of Mark. Guys, it's not enough just to write a prescription. Like I'm reading of, of smart homes that uh, are going to be in existence one day where you'll wake up in the morning and you'll go look in the mirror and the mirror will be able to read the temperature of your skin, the color of your skin, the dilation of your pupils and kind of know how you're feeling. 
And if you're not feeling well, that information could be sent to your doctor or your nurse practitioner so they could check on you. You use the bathroom and your urine's being analyzed to see how you're doing. Like, this is coming. And so if you're not feeling well, you can do like a FaceTime call with a person at your doctor's office and they can prescribe medicine without you ever having to see a person. We're, we're, we're being treated more and more like machines and not people. But it's not like that with Jesus. We're created in the image of God. We're not just broken machines. We're broken people. And Jesus is not just after mending what is broken physically. He's after our hearts. He's after our our devotion. He's after us being loved by him and us loving him. He doesn't just want to fix what is broken in you. He wants you to know you are loved. You are not alone. So what's broken in you this morning? What's the most broken area of your life right now? Not only does he have the power to either fix it or give you the strength to endure it, give you the grace to endure it, but more than that, he wants to come alongside of you and say, I, Jesus, King of the universe, and with you every step of the way of what you're walking through. And I'm sending you my body, my people, my hands, my feet, to walk with you every step of the way. It's not just power. It's compassion. It's sympathizing with us in our brokenness. And So see that. Be amazed by that. Fourthly, Jesus was personally spiritually healthy. Verse 35, And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed. And he went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. There are some burned out, tired, exhausted pastors in our area this morning. Some of these churches that have been leading the flood recovery efforts, cooking meals, organizing information, leading teams. And one thing that is true of many jobs, but especially true of ministry, is that you can burn yourself out helping and serving, serving others And your church will applaud you all the way until you either quit or you disqualify yourself. Look at my pastor go. Look at him serving others. Look at him giving himself for others. I have a great pastor. Let me me put it on Instagram. Let me put it on Facebook how awesome my pastor is. Neglecting himself, neglecting his family. But man, watch him go. Not taking care of himself, but look at him. I'm glad that he's my pastor. I'm proud of him. The church, by and large, does not have a good track record of healthy ministers who know how to find this right balance between work and rest for their leaders. And so their people don't know how to find the right balance between work and rest. Frankly, we're struggling with it as, as a crossing church. 55, 60-hour weeks are, are, are too common for me. And just this past week, I was sharing with Scott and Kendrick. I got so caught up in the flood relief and helping people. I quick, quickly realized I was neglecting my own soul. And I began to feel it, and my family began to feel it. Jesus could pour himself out for the good of others, but he would often retreat away and find time to be with his Father, to be recharged and refreshed. You give, you serve, you keep pouring out yourself for the good of others without replenishing your own soul at the well that is Jesus, you quickly will dry up inside. You you will be dry. You keep pouring yourself out for others, serving them, loving them, doing things that we're supposed to do as Christians, as good church members, all of a sudden you find that, that you've got nothing left to give because you haven't been drinking from the well that is Christ. 
So, so then you start to get hard and dry and cold and arrogant and self-righteous. And then you either quit or worse, you start faking it. You just start pretending. For some here this morning, the most spiritual thing you can do might be to quit serving others and spend time with your father and let him refresh your soul and root you and ground you again in Jesus and his gospel and give you wisdom and surround you with people who can help you learn how to serve and not neglect your own soul. If Jesus needed to pull away to be with his father, and I'm so glad he did this, this is often, several times in the Gospels you see this. If he hadn't have done this and it wasn't recorded, man, we would be blowing and going and killing ourselves. But the fact that Jesus pulled away to be with the Father, to be refreshed and replenished, gives us permission. Because if he needed it, we need it 10,000 times more to make sure we're spiritually healthy and we're not ministering to people out of our brokenness, but we're ministering to people out of spiritual health and vitality and there's no encumbrances or barriers to the presence and reality of Jesus to come through everything that we do he was personally spiritually healthy as you would expect and and then fifthly Jesus was gospel centered which is not a shock so we see Jesus ready to face the next challenge which is surprisingly come from his disciples look at verse 36 and Simon and those who were with him searched for him and they found him and said to him everyone is looking for you the term that is translated search for him is a very aggressive term. And every other time it's used in the Gospels, there's, there's a negative connotation. Many scholars believe the disciples were looking for Jesus with this desperate, tenacious fervor. Almost as if they were in charge of his ministry. And the monkey's gotten off the leash. Where did he go? Get him back. You got work to do, Jesus. Who do you think you are going off here by yourself? Get back over here and do this work that you, you had started. And considering the, the regular thick-headedness of the disciples, I think it's a, probably a fair characterization. Now, don't get puffed up like, oh, man, if I was a disciple, I wouldn't have done that. You would have. We'd have been in the same boat that they were in, if, knowing what they knew. But here they have watched Jesus spend hours healing who knows how many people, just this incredible outpouring of power and compassion and God's grace. So it would only be natural for them to assume they're early in this ministry. Like, this is what it's going to look like all the time? Like, we're just going to set up this healing tent in Capernaum, and people are just going to be coming by by the dozens and droves, and we're going to be healing them, and we're kind of overseeing it, and we're kind of sharing in the glory because we're his man, and, and, and we're administering this and helping people pass along through the line, and maybe this is what it's always going to be like. So they come find him. Everyone's looking for you. What are you doing out here? We got more people to heal. And now we see for the first time Jesus do what he often does in the Gospels. He puts his foot down and reminds them who he is and who's in charge. He said to them, verse 38, Let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Did Jesus come to heal physical diseases? No. It's not the primary reason he came. Jesus came to proclaim the gospel. And through his life, through his death, through his resurrection, which is the gospel, to bring about the gospel and the kingdom of God. He came to give his life. That is and was the ultimate purpose and reason that he came. Now he did heal, right? He physically healed people because ultimately the physical needs in this world, sickness, disease, pain, and hurt were brought about by sin. Sin coming into creation in Genesis 3. Before that, there was none of that. Revelation 20 and after, there'll be none of that. And so he's going to make things like they were, make all things new like they were. 
But Jesus came to defeat sin, Satan, and death. And as he came to do that, in his power, he was able to give out this taste of the future kingdom and what it's going to be like. Only Jesus could do this. And at times, he empowered his disciples to do this. And at times, he empowers us to do this. We can actually pray for people and they can be healed. But the healings and the miracles were never the message. The healings and the miracles were never the message. You might not get that conclusion if you watch religious television. Only the healings and the miracles only verified the message. The message was the gospel. And so Jesus leaves a place, what we would call very successful ministry. Things are happening like crazy in Capernaum. And he says, let's go to the next town because they need the gospel as well. There's been a huge effort in our area to help people emotionally, physically, over the last week and a half with their homes and possessions. And now FEMA's here, and they're going to start writing checks, and insurance companies are now writing checks. And tons have been donated, so much so that collection people are saying, don't bring any more, we're done. We have everything we need to supply all of humanity for the foreseeable future, at least in this area. We can't handle anything more. So people's homes and possessions are going to be taken care of. It's hard. I'm not, you know, somebody who didn't lose anything, it's, it'd, be, it'd be wrong for me to say it's not hard to lose stuff. It is hard. But it's also stuff. It's also stuff. I'm thankful for some in this area who, and I'm praying for more, who are, are, are realizing, churches realizing this is not a, an opportunity for us to simply replace possessions and homes and help people rebuild their idolatrous gods so they can continue to worship their stuff. This is an opportunity to help them to see that stuff makes a terrible God. And in one week, in a few days, it can be gone. Don't worship it. This is an opportunity for the gospel, and there's only one organization in the entire world that's been given the charge to proclaim this message. It's not FEMA. It's not all state or state farm. It's not the city of Monroe, the city of West Monroe. It's the church. So while volunteer work is going to begin to fade and eventually end, don't lose sight of the fact that gospel conversations still need to happen. And it can be with those who lost stuff. It can be with those who didn't, who've seen it happen. As simple as, how would you feel if your house was flooded and you lost everything? And then you walk that conversation back to the gospel. Jesus came and was drowned in the flood of God's wrath so that he could give us a treasure that we could never lose in any flood or any natural disaster. He came to give us himself. So that we could actually lose everything and not have insurance. And we'll be okay. Be amazed at this Jesus as the people were. Look at verse 27, 28 again. And they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. It commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. Be amazed at his authoritative teaching, his power over demons, his powerful compassion and healing, his personal spiritual vitality and his gospel centeredness. But realize... Everything Jesus has done for us, he intends to do through us. The Holy Spirit is in us to enable us to teach and preach with authority. Because we're rooted to the scriptures. This is what the scriptures say. The Holy Spirit helps us to see that. This is what they mean. This is how to apply them. And this is because of the Holy Spirit we can obey them. The Holy Spirit enables us to have power over demonic forces by saying no to temptation and sin and growing in righteousness and holiness. The Holy Spirit enables us, empowers us to have compassion for people who are hurting and who are sick 
to come alongside of them and pray for their healing. And maybe by God's grace, he heals them. Maybe he heals them when he calls them home to be with him and they're, they're given a glorified body. Or, or maybe he gives you the grace to show them grace to endure this sickness for as long as it lasts. But we're able to share that power and share that compassion because of the Holy Spirit's in us. The Holy Spirit empowers us to be spiritually healthy because we're connected to Jesus. We're staying close to Jesus. We're rooted to Jesus. And the Holy Spirit empowers us to proclaim the gospel. Everything Jesus has done for us, he now wants to go to do through us and send us out to do that in our city. So a couple of reflection questions that maybe around lunch today or, or with your family this week or in your DNA groups you can walk through. And these are on the outline you can grab on the way out if you don't have one. Number one, where have you lost sight of the fact that the gospel and Christianity is Jesus and not merely routines, rituals, and practices you keep? How close is Jesus to you right now? Number two, what is your relationship like to the Word? Is your time in the Word vibrant and intimate? Or is your life distant and cold with the Word? How often do you boldly speak with authority because you're speaking the Scriptures? Number three, how are you doing in your personal battle with sin? Satan intends to destroy you with sin. Are you walking in repentance and experiencing victory over temptation through the power of the Holy Spirit that's in you? Fourthly, how are you doing in showing compassion and mercy to those who are hurting, hurting and broken by life? What tangible steps can you take to share the compassion and mercy of Jesus? And then lastly, how is your soul being daily, weekly, monthly, refreshed and replenished by Jesus? What is your plan to make sure you stay spiritually healthy? Father, we're grateful for your word. We thank you for how it has fallen on us today. And we trust the Spirit is going to do good work in us for the glory of Jesus alone. And so help us to respond this morning by sharing in this meal of the bread and the cup, remembering the, the life, the death, the sacrifice of Jesus so that all this is possible. Thank you for the opportunity to give financially to, to the Crossing Church so that... that uh, it's a demonstration of our faith and trust that you're providing for all of our needs and we can worship you by how we, we give and trust you to use that for the spread of your gospel. Thank you that we can sing these songs that are centered on Jesus and with everything that's in us, we make much of him. We make him famous in this room. We make him famous in this city. And thank you for making all this possible through your son. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.